morning, everyone. Um, before I dive into today's sermon, actually, I have one more announcement kind of on behalf of the Shepherds, our elder board, um, which is about our lead pastor, John. So uh, some of you already saw this if you get the weekly email, but you might have noticed that he hasn't been up here uh, that much in the last few weeks, though he was here last Sunday, and some of you saw him at the Honduras team meeting. Um, but particularly in light of where we are as a church, we wanted to let you know that this is not at all related to John's transition or the search process, um, but rather is unfortunately due to another month of health challenges in John's family. Um, so April 18th, just a little under a month ago, was the start of really a month-long saga for John's mom. She was sent to the ER due to back, severe back pain, um, and then she was back home for a day, and then she went back for a full week stay, um, and now she is back home in care locally. But simultaneously, at almost exactly the same time, within days, John's brother was also hospitalized uh, for his own health complications, and he is now currently living with John and his family at the Riemenschneider home. Um, since he typically lives a few hours away. So as you can imagine, this has been a very demanding and tumultuous few weeks as John has stepped in to care for both of his family members. His other brother lives far away in Indiana. Uh, and so in light of all that's been going on for the last few weeks, the Shepherd Board initiated and approved giving John um, two weeks away, two weeks off, to care for his family and to rest and recover. Um, so he was off last week. He'll continue to be off this coming week. Uh, and so you'll see him at, here in two Sundays, uh, in two weeks. But in the meantime, I'm going to invite you to join me in prayer for John and Lynn and his whole family. So let's pray together this morning. God of healing and nurturing and care, we come before you this morning and ask that your hand would continue to be upon John and Lynn, his brother, his mom, and the whole family. Um, as they are experiencing a full house, uh, God, would you create moments of space and peace as well as moments of joy amidst the challenges and the difficulties? Uh, would you grant wisdom and guidance to both John and his family as they're making all the decisions that come with these things, both big and small, uh, as well as for all of the medical care, uh, all those who are interacting with them, the nurses, the wait staff, the doctors, everyone, who is involved in these times. Um, God, we pray that your hand of peace, your hand of wisdom, and your hand of healing would be upon all of them. Would you grant John and Lynn um, a centeredness, a rootedness, as these times can feel so tumultuous and just tossing them about and one thing after another, would they find um, their hope and their peace in you and your presence that goes with them through all the ups and downs and all the big and small moments we ask that even now, that they would be able to exhale and experience your peace and your grace upon them. Would you bring healing and comfort to his family and wisdom for all of them? In your name we pray, amen. So I have, probably like a lot of you, but not all, I've been in church my entire life, um, but I've always been in non-denominational churches, which is also what Highway is. Uh, so I've always been part of churches that are very kind of free form in terms of how we pray and how our services are structured and what passages we teach on or what series we do. Uh, but I went to a Catholic high school, and so that was my first introduction to liturgy, and I kind of like dove straight into the deep end with that one. Um, but I didn't really appreciate the richness that liturgy can have. 
Uh, as a teenager, I was mostly aware of how saying the same words at every mass that we would do at school or kind of the big ceremonies, um, I noticed that my peers would just kind of recite those words robotically, and they didn't seem to have much meaning to them anymore. It seemed like they had kind of lost their meaning because of the sheer repetition that my peers had had their whole lives. But over the last several years, I've also really come to appreciate the beauty and the richness that liturgy and repeated prayers can have. There's something really powerful about being united in the words that we're saying with Christ followers across the globe, across language, even across history and centuries of prayer. There's a connection there that I didn't experience as someone who's always been in independent churches. And repetition, while it obviously can lend itself to becoming rote or kind of empty, is also a really effective way to keep something central and to instill it deep within who we are. It's like a familiar song that you never forget. Even if you haven't heard it in 10 years, you could probably still sing it because you heard it a thousand times. Or a habit that's so ingrained that you do so often that now you hardly even have to think about it. It's just kind of automatic. It's part of how you live. So repetition can help instill words or actions or habits uh, to become part of who we are. Here at Highway, we practice that in a few small ways, including the benediction that we say at the end of every service. We say the same thing, and I love those words that we say each week, and I love that we say them each week because they ground us in the kind of church and the kind of people we want to be. But that's not just true for church, right? We see this in other settings, too, that repetition is powerful. It's why I presume as a kid I said the Pledge of Allegiance in school every single day. Somebody thought that was really important for us to understand. Coaches will frequently have sayings or reminders that they say over and over again, right? Players know there's a certain thing that they really want them to remember. Or kind of an inspiration, if you think of TV coaches, fans of Friday Night Lights would know Coach Taylor's clear eyes, full hearts. Yeah, I knew somebody would say it, can't lose. Or more recently, if you watch Ted Lasso, you might know Be a Goldfish, or how he has Believe taped over his door. I suspect most parents or households have certain phrases that get repeated over and over, whether or not you even realize it or not. You might ask your kids about that one, or think about your own parents. Even companies will have mission statements and vision statements that, in many cases, especially if they have a strong culture, so to speak, they'll repeat them all the time. So everyone knows what we're about, and it's a way of reminding people, whatever your role within this company, you're part of something bigger, and this is what we're here to do. So the point is that kind of across all spheres, what we repeat over and over helps both reflect and remind us of the values, the philosophy, the habits that we care about. It's the reminders of their inspiration that we want to hold close, the words or the habits that we want to inform us and inform how we act. So for Jews, those central repeated words were and still are what's known as the Shema. Now, in many Jewish practices, the Shema is actually quite robust and holistic and has three parts, but it's pretty universally accepted that the first and most important part of the Shema are the words found in Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 to 9. This says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. 
I think there was something missing in there. He says in verses six to seven, these commandments that I give to you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. And so in accordance with those verses, to recite those words when you are at home, when you lie down, when you get up, as you walk along the road, a traditional Jewish practice even today is to recite the Shema two to three times daily, kind of at minimum when you wake up and before you go to bed. And maybe a third would be the midday as you are at home or as you walk along the road, kind of that idea of like throughout your day. And again, the words that they were to recite, the words to instill in their children, to put over their homes, to make the focal point of their entire community and life was those first two verses. Again, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And while in most Christian tradition we don't recite these multiple times a day, they're probably still very familiar to you. You've probably heard these words quite a bit. And in part, that's not only because they're so crucial to the Torah or to the core Jewish practices, which our faith is built on, but also because they're repeated in one of Jesus's cornerstone teachings, which is found in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Because when asked, what is the greatest commandment, Jesus, who was a faithful Jew himself, responds in the way that any Jew would, with the words of the Shema. That was nothing surprising. That's what everybody would have expected a Jewish leader like Jesus to say. The twist that Jesus adds is by then pairing it with a verse from Leviticus, when he says, and the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself, which is a, a way of saying, and also the, another way that you love God with your whole self is to love others with your whole self. So this Shema then are foundational words for Jews and Christians alike, words that we are to remember, to dwell on, not just daily, but multiple times a day, the words on which Jesus says all the law and prophets hang on these words. They're so crucial and foundational. So then I think they merit a deeper look and an understanding. And it's called the Shema because the first word here in Hebrew is Shema. That's the Hebrew, ancient Hebrew word. And every language carries so much nuance and meaning. Language reveals so much about how a culture or people see the world. And as you might imagine, ancient Hebrew is not exactly like English. And there are certain implications or connotations to all of our words, both in English and in ancient Hebrew, as with all language. And so for the next three weeks, we're going to dig into one to two of the key words to really understand what this verse means, especially in ancient Hebrew, and how those nuances shape not only understanding of this prayer, but of our faith and what it means to love God, and like it, to love others. And so we're going to dig deeper into what the ancient Jews, including Jesus, might have heard or understood when they recited words like hear and love, and what it meant to love with all of your heart, your soul, and your strength. And so today, we're going to begin with the first, and thus the titular word, Shema. And to tell us about this word more comprehensively, but succinctly and engagingly than I can, we're going to watch a short video from The Bible Project. For thousands of years, every morning and evening, Jewish people have prayed these well-known words as a way of expressing their devotion to God. They're called the Shema. Hear, O Israel, 
The Lord is our God, the Lord is one. And as for you, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your strength. Now the first word of the Shema is hear or listen, which in Hebrew is pronounced Shema. That's where the prayer gets its name. Now Shema is a really common word in the Hebrew Bible, and it's obvious why hearing is a very universal activity. It's usually connected with the ear, as in Proverbs chapter 20, ears that shema and eyes that see, the Lord has made them both. Now that seems basic enough, but if you look at the other ways that Hebrew authors can use the word shema, they use it to mean more than just let sound waves enter your ear. In Hebrew, shema can also mean pay attention to or focus on. So when Leah, who was loved by her husband Jacob, she has a son, and she names him Simon, or in Hebrew, Shimon. Because, she says, the Lord has shama'ah, that I am unloved. So shama'ah means to hear and to pay attention to, and even more. It could also mean responding to what you hear. This is why so many of the cries for help in the book of Psalms begin with a call that God listen. Psalm 27, verse 7. Shema my voice when I call, O Lord. Be merciful. Answer me. So asking God to shema is at the same time asking God to act. To do something. It's similar to when God asks people to listen. Like when the people of Israel come to Mount Sinai, God says, If you shema me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. Now there's a couple interesting things about this verse in Exodus. In Hebrew, the word shema is repeated twice in the sentence to give an emphasis. If you shema shema, meaning listen closely. But also notice that from God's point of view, listening is basically the same as keeping the covenant. So when God asks the people to shema, what he means is that they listen and obey. And that's the last fascinating thing about shema. In ancient Hebrew, there is no separate word for obey, meaning to carry out the wishes of someone who knows better than you or is in authority over you. So in the Bible, if you want to say, I will listen and do what you say, you use the single word shema. In Hebrew, listening and doing are two sides of the same. This is why later in Israel's history, when the people were breaking their covenant promises to God, the Hebrew prophets would say things like, they have ears, but they're not listening. The Israelites, of course, could hear just fine, but they weren't actually listening, or else they would act differently. And so in the end, listening in the Bible is about giving respect to the one speaking to you and doing what they say. Real listening takes effort and action, and that's the Hebrew word Shema. All right, so let's break that down just a little bit. The video had what I would say is essentially four meanings or layers of what it means to listen in the Hebrew language and context. So the first one is to simply hear the words, right? The basic act of listening, the sound waves coming into your ears, as they said. And this would be the kind of literal English definition of hear as well. But then there's also pay attention or focus. And I think in English, already, we would distinguish this as the difference between hearing and listening, right? Can you hear me is a phrase we've all said way too many times in the last three years since we started going on Zoom. Uh, but that usually means the literal, can you hear my voice? Is my sound working? Whereas, are you paying attention? Is, are you listening, right? We don't usually say, are you hearing me when someone's not paying attention? We say, are you listening? Are you actually taking in what I'm saying? But then with Shema, there's also responding to what you hear. 
And that's sort of implicit, I think, in listening, right? Are you listening and actually responding and taking this in? But then the video kind of makes it sound a little bit stronger in Hebrew, which is made clear by the fourth and final meaning, which is to obey or to do what is being said. And you know, the idea of hearing someone who is especially in authority or in leadership or who has more experience or more wisdom than you, to listen means to obey or follow through with what they're saying. And so in English, already we have some nuances between hearing and listening and how we use those words, but I think obey is like an entirely separate word. Whereas I find it so fascinating that there is no other word for obey in Hebrew. There's no other way to talk about that because it's so implicit in listening or hearing that if you didn't respond, if you didn't follow through and do what was being said, you weren't shema'ing. You did not really hear. And when we understand the full layers and nuances of this word, I think it brings clarity to a lot of what we hear in scripture, especially the warnings. And there were a lot of examples in the video, but to take a few more, in the prophets in particular, in the Hebrew scriptures, they'll often say, listen, or hear, O Israel, that same kind of first phrase as we find in Deuteronomy. And then they'll go on in their frustration to say things like, their ears are not open, which isn't really a phrase we would use in English, or they're seeing but do not see, they are hearing but do not hear. So let's take Ezekiel 12:2 for example. Son of man, you are living among a rebellious people, they have eyes to see, but do not see, and ears to hear, but do not hear, for they are a rebellious people. Now, in many ways, I never understood why it was translated this way. Why not just say they have ears to hear, but they don't understand, or they're not doing it? Why, why translate it like this, which doesn't totally make sense in the way that we would say it in English? But it's because it's the same word. So this is a more literal translation of what is written in the Hebrew. And it's because Shema means all of those things. So where we might say, does it mean that they don't understand or that they're not doing it? All of that was one word. And notice how that definition of not responding or obeying is embedded here, because by not listening, they are rebellious. And so while it's true that we might use different phrases if we were to just kind of say this on our own, what these verses reflect on a deeper level is that in both the Hebrew language and in the Hebrew worldview, there was no distinction between hearing and responding or doing. As we'll continue to hear in these next few weeks, that kind of separation or the compartmentalization within ourselves or between thought and action, that didn't exist in Hebrew language. It was far more holistic and connected. So those kind of distinctions wouldn't have made sense. They didn't even have different words for it. And we see this going on into the New Testament as well. Because Jesus will quote those same words from the prophets in several of his parables and teachings. For example, in Mark 4, he'll begin the parable by saying, listen, and he ends with saying, whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. Now, Jesus was likely speaking in Aramaic, and the New Testament is written in Greek, but keep in mind that as a Jew himself, Jesus likely would have been taught and steeped in the Hebrew meaning of these words, and he was drawing upon these familiar phrases from the Hebrew scriptures. Now, for a long time, I thought and have even heard taught in various contexts that when Jesus said these things, it was primarily about being confusing or elusive of like, whoever can understand what I'm saying because the way is narrow. 
it was almost kind of like a test. Like, whoever can understand this riddle, you get in. And certainly, Jesus does say some things that indicate not everyone is going to understand or be able to follow his teachings. But as I reconsider the meaning of Shema and how Jesus grew up hearing those phrases, I don't think Jesus is primarily referring to those who can get it. But rather, in the spirit of the word of Shema, I think Jesus is primarily inviting his listeners to respond. Those who will actually follow my teachings, let them do so. And so let's consider the very nature of this parable that he bookends in this way. Because the parable itself is about the soils, which vary in how well they receive the seed cast out by the farmer. Mark 4, verses 3 to 9, says this. Listen, a farmer went out to sow his seed. And as he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path, and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places, where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched, and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants, so that they did not bear grain. Still other seed fell on good soil. It came up, grew, and produced a crop, some multiplying 30, some 60, some 100 times. Then Jesus said, whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. Now, certainly this passage in and of itself has a lot of rich soil to till different truths. Oh, wow, silence. Okay, I'm sorry for that. But setting aside some of the deeper meanings of each of the soils, which Jesus goes on to break down, Jesus himself explains later in verse 14 that the overarching point of the parable is about receptiveness to the word. In other words, it's about how well people truly hear, how well they will truly shema the scriptures and teachings, because those who have good fertile soil for the word to sink in will produce good fruit, meaning they'll live it out and their lives will show it. So while others will hear, the seed falls on the ground, but it doesn't last. For a variety of different reasons, it doesn't yield a crop. Nothing actually comes from their hearing. And so then I think when Jesus concludes, whoever has ears to hear, he doesn't just mean whoever can understand what I'm talking about, though certainly that is a layer because the disciples don't understand it. But I think he also means on a deeper level, whoever can hear and respond, whoever can hear and obey the word, whoever can live it out. And we will know who those people are because that person's life will grow and produce a crop. He goes on to say some 30, some 60, some 100 times what was shown. And this gets reinforced yet again in the early church after Jesus is gone and people are figuring out how do we follow the way of Jesus now that he's not here. And I think perhaps the clearest example of this is from James 1, who spells this out to his followers in verse 22 to 24. He says, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. We're getting real clear now. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself, goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard, but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. So James himself was a Jew, now following in the way of Jesus, 
as were those in the church he was writing to. They were all steeped in this Hebrew tradition. And so in that same spirit of Shema, he's reminding and exhorting them to truly listen. But James really spells it out. Like he is not letting them forget that layer of what it means to hear. It's almost as if James is like, look everybody, in case you have forgotten what this really means, because we have a different language now and we live in a different country, Let's remember, Shema means not, it's not enough to just listen or hear these words. You have to do them. You have to live them. You have to do what these teachings say, not just hear and understand them. So over and over again, from the Torah to the prophets to Jesus to the early church, to hear the word of God is to live them out. And those cornerstone words, coming back to what started all of this, the core motto, so to speak, of both the Jewish and the Christian faith, the words most centrally important for us to Shema are that the Lord our God is one and that we are to love the Lord with all of our hearts, with all of our soul, with all of our strength. And as Jesus expands and clarifies, that means to love our neighbors in the same way. So this morning, what might it mean to hear the truth that the Lord our God is one? To hear that the Lord is our God? To hear that God is not about just understanding what's going on or just giving a piece of ourselves or agreeing with these ideas or even going through motions but having shallow soil in which the words don't sink in deep. But rather that the invitation has always been to love God with our whole selves and to love others in the same way to know that the Lord is God in a way that we entrust him with our whole lives. So in times of fear and uncertainty, in times of frustration, in times of hopelessness, how will we truly shema that the Lord is our God? Do we even perhaps say morning prayers or read the Bible, but then, like James said, walk away from a mirror and forget what we have seen? Or will we look to God in all of our lives, trust that God is the Lord in all things and is with us, relying on God for the strength and the grace for whatever it is we experience in all of our days as we wake up and lie down and as we go about and sit at home? Or when in our everyday lives we have those moments of being frustrated with other people or perhaps inwardly criticizing or judging people or distancing ourselves from people that we don't understand, or frankly, if we're honest, we just don't like. When our ego or our fear gets in the way of love, what then does it mean to truly shema that the Lord is God, and that we are to love him and love others with our whole self? What then does it mean to hear and love in a way that yields a crop multiplying, some 30, some 60, some 100, a life that reproduces the love and the way of freedom that James reminds us of. And so in the next few weeks, we'll dig even deeper into what the Hebrews would have understood and meant when they talked about love and what it meant to do so with all of our heart and soul and strength. But for this morning, let's remember that to hear the Shema is to live our whole lives responding to the truth, the Lord is our God and that we are to actively respond in love for him and for others with all of who we are. Each week, 
another core repeated practice that we have is to take communion. And we do so because it's a key way to center ourselves on the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, who not only taught about what it means to love, but lived it out fully. And we are taught this practice from Jesus' last meal with his disciples before his death, which was also the Passover meal, in which they remembered how God delivered their ancestors from slavery. And so as they're remembering the way that God saved their ancestors, Jesus took that same bread and said, do this in remembrance of me, that this is my body given for you. So this whole meal, these symbols of bread and wine were already steeped in symbolism and tradition. And as such, I don't think it's much of a stretch to say that when Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me, he didn't mean like looking back at old pictures or remembering a key moment where you kind of ponder it for a moment and then you move on with your day. But I imagine to do this in remembrance is to emulate it, is to do likewise, to follow in his footsteps. As he says elsewhere, to pick up our cross and follow him in the way of sacrificial love for God and for others. So to remember the bread and the wine, to Shema is to hear, to respond, to do likewise. And so this morning, as I invite you to come to the tables throughout the room, as we take the bread and the wine or the juice, may we do this in remembrance of Jesus, not just, not only in reflection and in prayer for the next few minutes, but also to respond wholeheartedly as we go from this place, loving God and loving others in every day in all of our lives. May we do this in remembrance of him.